take your Bibles and go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. These things I've written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. If Christ is possessed, then a man will know that there is something dwelling within him, apart from his physical and material makeup, which has its origin in God. This is also the reason why the gospel should be preached today, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, be declared to the world. Because only through him can man be both given and come to practically know that God's eternal life is theirs. To therefore preach Christ and make him known is to preach that precious gift of spiritual regeneration. It is to reveal the wonderful revelation that God's eternal life can be found in the one sent to declare him to the world. There is but one entrance into heaven, and it is through the Son of God who now sits in heaven. There also should be no guesswork in determining true salvation, as both God's Word and God's Spirit will confirm its possession. When there is sincere belief in Christ, obedience to His words, and love for the brethren, this will produce an inward confidence of being born of God and sharing in spiritual relationship with Him. Where religion by itself will provide no real certainty of these truths, genuine and sincere belief in the Son of God will. The latter part of the verse now, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is not a repetition of what was previously said, but instead an exhortation to continue in the faith already spoken of. It is not enough to merely believe upon Jesus Christ for a moment or a brief period of time. To do this offers no sure hope of gaining the life offered through him. True faith is an enduring faith, which shall always manifest itself as genuine by remaining faithful to God once it has begun. In reality, there is no such thing as a temporal or momentary faith that will save men, as both belief in the Son and subjection to his lordship must continue until this earthly life is over or we are received into heaven by him. It is ultimately faith that produces faithfulness, which is essential to receiving from God all that he has promised. In Hebrews six twelve, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If men become unfaithful in following God's will for their life, it is proof of lack of true spiritual regeneration. To believe in the Son of God, therefore, implies that faith must continue until such time as we enter into heaven. Any falling away from the Savior prior to this shall carry fatal consequences. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Barnes on this verse, such a statement might be one of the most effectual means of preserving from apostasy. To state that a fall from a precipice would cause certain death would be one of the most certain means of preserving one from falling. 
to affirm that arsenic would certainly be fatal is one of the most effectual means of preventing its being taken. To know that fire certainly destroys is one of the most sure checks from the danger. Thousands have been preserved from going over the falls of Niagara by knowing that there would be no possibility of escape. And so effectual has been this knowledge that is preserved all from such a catastrophe, except the very few who have gone over by accident. So in religion. The knowledge that apostasy would be fatal, and there could be no hope of being of the danger than all the other means that could be used. If a man believed that it would be an easy matter to be restored again should he apostatize, he would feel no solicitude in regard to it, and it has occurred in fact that they who suppose that this may occur have manifested little of the care to walk in the paths of strict religion, which should have been evidenced. End quote. The Christian's call is a continued call that requires faithfulness unto the end. Hence, once the journey begins, it should not be thought that can be departed from. To do so endangers the promise of eternal life itself. To look back is extremely dangerous. To turn back is spiritually fatal. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, we read, And Jesus said unto them, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary, As plowing requires an eye, intent on the furrow to be made, and as marred the instant one turns about, so will they come short of salvation who prosecute the work of God with a distracted attention, a divided heart. Though the reference seems chiefly to ministers, the application is general. The expression, looking back, has a manifest reference to Lot's wife. It is not actual return to the world, but a reluctance to break with it. End quote. Verse 14 now, 1 John. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. When it is known that we have been saved, this promotes confidence that things asked according to God's will will be both heard and answered. True faith in the Son of God therefore produces an inward confidence to approach God in prayer with the belief that if the request is according to his will, he will answer it. When this occurs and prayers are answered, this provides spiritual proof that true relationship with God exists. A practical point which encourages faith in God is focusing not on the specific petition, but on the Lord himself. It is therefore by trusting in the Lord and not simply our specific petition that provides the best way to keep our hearts at peace until such time that our needs are met. Understandably, no faith can really be developed in God by over-focusing on every request made to Him. It, is also, it also goes without saying that it is not confidence in self that gives hope of answered prayer, but only trust and confidence in the one we are praying to. Prayers of faith are answered, therefore not because of who we are, nor if we are worthy for them to be answered, but because of whom God is and what he has promised to us. Verse 15, And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. At the heart of gaining confidence to regularly pray must first be the belief that we will be heard. This is also what true fellowship with God and the Son of God produces. 
the Lord hearing those saved through Christ and helping them according to his own divine will. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible commentary on this. Not one of our past prayers offered in faith according to his will is lost. Like Hannah, we can rejoice over them as granted even before the event and can recognize that when it comes to pass, as not from chance, but obtained by our past prayers. Compare also Jehoshaphat's believing confidence in the issues of his prayers, so much so that he appointed singers to praise the Lord beforehand. End quote. If a man knows that he has been heard by God, this will produce the expectation of receiving what has been asked. Barnes on uh, 1 John 5.15 And if we know that he hear us, that is, if we are assured of this thing as a true doctrine, then even though we may not see immediately that the prayer is answered, we may have the utmost confidence that it is not discarded, and that it will be answered in the way best adopted to promote our good. The answer to prayer is sometimes delayed, though ultimately granted. There may be reasons why the answer should be deferred, and the promise is not that it shall be immediate." End quote. What also should never be forgotten is that all prayer must be accompanied by faith, that it is not sufficient that we merely lift words to heaven if there is no true faith in whom we are lifting them to. Faith in God, therefore, is critical in receiving anything from him. In Mark eleven twenty two, Christ's words, And Jesus said, answering, said unto them, Have ye faith in God? Barnes on this verse, Have the faith of God. This may mean have strong faith or have confidence in God, a strong belief that he is able to accomplish things that appear most difficult with infinite ease, as the fig tree was made to wither away by a word, end quote. Just as in receiving other divine promises, faith plays an integral part in ultimately receiving from God what he has both promised and asked of him. In James 1, 6, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Barnes also on this, but let him ask in faith. We cannot hope to obtain any favor from God if there is not faith. And where, as in regard to the wisdom necessary to guide us, we are sure that it is in accordance with his will to grant it to us. We may come to him with the utmost confidence the most entire assurance that it will be granted. In this case, we should come to God without a doubt that if we ask with a proper spirit, the very thing that we ask will be bestowed on us. We cannot, in all other cases, be so sure that what we ask will be for our good or that it will be in accordance with his will to bestow it. And hence, we cannot in such cases come with the same kind of faith. We can then only come with unwavering confidence in God that he will do what is right and best and that if he sees that what we ask will be for our good, he will bestow it upon us. Here, however, nothing prevents our coming with the assurance that the very thing which we ask will be conferred on us, end quote. Verse 16 now, First John. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. 
Intercessory prayers are an important responsibility in the believer's life, where prayers are not simply offered to God for our own needs, but to also help brothers and sisters deceived and snared by sin. Just as intercessory prayer can save the sick, so can it assist in bringing those who have sinned against God to regain fellowship with Him. Ultimately, prayer for other members in the body of Christ is as essential as praying for our own needs to be met. There is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. Though it is available to pray for those who have committed sin not unto death, this does not include sin that is. Sinners can go so far that not even another's prayers can redeem them. There is in the universe natural laws that govern points of no return. The same is true concerning spiritual laws. For example, in the natural realm, if a man jumped off an exceedingly high and rocky cliff, but then in the middle of the fall changed his mind about his decision, this could not prevent him from the fatal consequences of his action. Hence, in many things, including sin, there exists an event horizon that if passed through, there is no chance of reversing the choice made nor the inevitable consequence that must come because of it. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an example of such a spiritual sin that the Scripture reveals will not be forgiven by God, and as such, even prayer cannot assist those committing it. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus' words, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. If no other record alarms men, to the danger of aligning themselves with the devil and carrying his words of blasphemy against an evil speaking the Holy Spirit. It should be this one. For if done, there remains no room for forgiveness, and not even prayers of faith can change the Lord's mind. Hence, to account the work of God as the work of the devil is an unpardonable sin. There is no sin so great as that which ascribes the work of the Holy Spirit as evil, to proceed this far in sin goes even beyond the manifold grace of God. To align oneself with the devil is to carry out his work and speak evil of the very gospel purpose to save man. Ellicott's commentary on Matthew twelve thirty one: The Pharisees were warned against a sin to which they were drawing perilously near. To condemn the Christ as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber and as breaking the Sabbath or blaspheming when he said, Thy sins be forgiven thee, was to speak a word against the Son of Man. These offenses might be sins of ignorance, not implying more than narrowness and prejudice, but to see a man delivered from the power of Satan unto God, to watch the work of the Spirit of God, and then to ascribe that work to the power of evil. This was to be out of sympathy with goodness and mercy altogether. In such a character... There was no opening for repentance, and therefore none for forgiveness. The capacity for goodness in any form was destroyed by this antagonism. The human nature in that extremist debasement has identified itself with the devil nature and must share its doom, end quote. Verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Whenever men do not follow either God's will or God's spirit, it is sin. But this does not mean that all sin is unpardonable and must end in death. If this were the case, 
God's grace would prove insufficient to forgive the truly penitent, which as surely is not. God's nature to forgive all manner of sin, and as such, when repented of, the grace of God will prove itself observably greater than the abundance of sin committed by man. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where then sin has abounded and grown to epic proportions, the grace of God and the gift of Jesus Christ surpasses even the abundance of sin committed. Thankfully, the vast amount of sin in the world is not unpardonable and can and will be forgiven through repentance and Christ sacrificing himself for sin. And just as it is in Adam's fallen nature to sin, so is it in God's loving nature to forgive and cleanse men from sin. Multitudes both have and will be forgiven when they turn to the Son of God and the grace of God found in him. Verse 18 now. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. It is a spiritual reality, an established truth, that those born of God neither can, wish, nor desire to continue in sin. The very nature of God imparted to those born of him prohibits this. What this verse plainly and uniquely teaches is that true Christians cannot remain living in sin, and if some claim they can, they never were truly born of God. There are two great reasons for this. The first is that with spiritual regeneration, a new spiritual heart replaces what was previously a carnal and sinful heart. Because of this, righteousness will be preferred over unrighteousness. The second reason is because God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, preserves, protects, and keeps safe those whom God has given him. Ellicott's commentary on this, But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. Rather, he that is begotten of God keepeth him. That is, the Son of God preserves him. End quote. It is impossible for any true child of God to continue in sin, let alone commit the impardonable sin previously spoken of. Barnes on 1 John 5.18, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, is not habitually and characteristically a sinner, does not ultimately and finally sin and perish, cannot therefore commit the impardonable sin. Though he may fall into sin and grieve his brethren, yet we are never to cease to pray for a true Christian. We are never to feel that he has committed the sin which is never forgiveness and that he has thrown himself beyond the reach of our prayers. This passage, in its connection, is a full proof that a true Christian will never commit the unpardonable sin, and therefore is a proof that he will never fall from grace. Keepeth himself. It is not said that he does this by his own strength, but he will put forth his best efforts to keep himself from sin, and by divine assistance he will able to accomplish it. And that wicked one toucheth him not the great enemy of all good, is repelled in his assaults, and he is kept from falling into snares, end quote. And now the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on 1 John 5, 18. That wicked one toucheth him not, so as to hurt him, insofar that he realizes his regeneration life, the prince of this world hath nothing in him to fasten his deadly temptations on, as in Christ's own case. His divine regeneration has severed once for all his connection with the prince of this world.
end quote. It is Satan that has always lured and enticed men to sin. It is Christ who has broken his power, thus by the Spirit of God imparted to the believer, and the Son of God's power to protect him from the wicked one. A life of sin cannot either be lived in or returned to, because God is greater than Satan, and the Son of God has defeated him. The Christian salvation remains hid in God and in Christ. And Colossians 3.3, 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Barnes on this, is hid with Christ in God. The language here is taken probably from treasure which is hid or concealed in a place of security. And the idea is that eternal life is an invaluable jewel or treasure which is laid up with Christ in heaven where God is. There is it is safely deposited. It has this security that it is with the Redeemer and that he is in the presence of God. And thus nothing can reach it or take it away. It is not left with us or entrusted to our keeping. For then it might be lost as we might lose an invaluable jewel. Or it might be wrestled from us or we might be defrauded of it. But it is now laid up far out of our sight and far from the reach of all our enemies. And with one who can keep that which we have committed unto him against that day, 2 Timothy 1.12. Our eternal life, therefore, is as secure as it could possibly be made. The true condition of the Christian is that he is dead to this world, but that he has immortal life in prospect, and that is secure being in the holy keeping of his Redeemer. Now in the presence of God, from this it follows that he should regard himself as living for heaven. Colossians 3.1 if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, end quote. By being born of God and having been given eternal life by the Son of God, the believer's life is safely held, preserved, and protected from he who wishes to destroy the souls of men. Thus, once saved by Christ and given eternal life by him, then there is no evil power including even the devil himself, who can plunder and rob the life given, simply because the power of the Son of God is greatly more than the great deceiver of men. And in John chapter 10, verse 27, Christ's words, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Once saved by the Son, a person is crossed over that great chasm which separates death and life. And as such, it is impossible that his new standing in heaven can be taken away. Never again can true saints fall under God's condemnation and be separated from him. If this occurs, then no true heavenly sonship was ever given. And in John chapter 5, verse 24, Christ's words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Barnes on this verse, Hence when a man is converted, it is said that he has everlasting life, not merely shall have, but is already in possession of that life or happiness which shall be everlasting. It is life begun, expanded, ripening for the skies. He has already entered on his inheritance that inheritance which is everlasting, shall not come into condemnation. He was by nature under condemnation, see John 
Here it is declared that he shall not return to this state, or he will not be again condemned. This promise is sure, it is made by the Son of God, and there can be no one that can pluck them out of his hand. But is passed from death unto life, has passed over from a state of spiritual death to the life of the Christian. The word translated is passed would be better expressed by has passed. It implies that he has done it voluntarily, that none compelled him, and the passage is made into everlasting life, end quote. There is a great gulf that separates the dead and the living. As such, when God's life is entered into, it is a certain to guarantee eternal life, as eternal death would guarantee eternal death. There is life and there is death, and then there is eternal life and eternal death. What this teaches us is that once a man has by faith in the Son of God passed into the eternal realm of God, then all connections to this present evil world are severed. Hence, the believer is separated, not only from his previous state of being dead in sins, but also any condemnation from God in the future produced by sin. In Christ, we are saved from God's wrath, both individually and collectively. This is one of the great wonders of divine grace and plan of redemption, whereby through faith in the resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ, sinners are lifted up, made eternally holy, and shall never again come under condemnation and judgment for sin. Because of a relationship to the Son of God, those saved by Him are made completely new creatures, separated from sin and all elements of their past. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This process of God making a man a new creature in Christ is also referred to as being born again. When this has spiritually occurred, there is a severing from this world and all the sin in it. By identifying ourselves with the Savior, we are given the same eternal and spiritual life as Him. There is no greater truth and revelation in Scripture than that which reveals that through belief in the Son of God, our sins against God are canceled out, and a new standing of spiritual sonship is given to us. This is a wonder of wonders and will require spiritual enlightenment to fully grasp the manifold grace and glory of this truth. That through faith in God's Son, we are first forgiven by God, and then given the privilege to become sons of God ourselves. Verse 19, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Verse 20 now, And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This verse reveals the three spiritual realities that every child of God will be made to know through the Holy Spirit's revelation to him. One, that God is his Father, and he is God's Son. Two, that the whole world lies in wickedness. And three, that the reason this divine understanding is ours is because Jesus Christ has come and given us true understanding of the one true God. Matthew Poole on this. It is here signified how satisfying a knowledge and certainty sincere Christians had that Christ was indeed come by that blessed effect they found upon themselves, a clear and lively light shining by his procurement 
and communication into their minds, whereby they had other apprehensions more vivid and powerful than ever before, so as thereby to be drawn into union with him and to be in him, or which in effect is the same thing. So entire is the oneness between the Father and the Son. We are in his Son, Jesus Christ, who also is the true God and eternal life, as he is called, end quote. And now the last verse in 1 John, 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Though these last words of the apostle seem to take a digression, the truth revealed is that for even those born of God, there remains a danger of unintended idolatry. Idolatry where personal pursuits, worldly pleasures, and cares of this world wrongly assume a place in the believer's heart reserved only for God and God's Son. For this reason, care should be taken and the heart regularly inspected to ensure that nothing assumes the rightful place of God in his children's heart or life. Idolatry is indeed possible, and especially so if the heart is not guarded and all thoughts brought into obedience to Christ. Barnes on this verse. Why the apostle closed this epistle with this injunction he has not stated, and it may not be easy to determine. It may have been for such reasons as these. One, those to whom he wrote were surrounded by idolaters, and there was danger that they might fall into the prevailing sin or in some way so act as to be understood to lend their sanction to idolatry. Two, in a world full of alluring objects, there was a danger then, as there is at all times, that the affection should be fixed on other objects than the supreme God and that what is due to him should be withheld. It may be added in the conclusion of the exposition of this epistle that the same caution is as needful for us as it was for those to whom John wrote. We are not in danger, indeed, of bowing down to idols or of engaging in the grosser form of idol worship, but we may be in no less danger than they to whom John wrote were of substituting other things in our affections in place of the one true God, and of devoting to them the time and the affection which are due to him. Our children, it is possible to love with such an attachment as shall effectively exclude the true God from their heart. The world, its wealth and pleasures and honors, we may love with a degree of attachment, such as even an idolater would hardly show to his idol gods, and all the time which he would take in performing his devotions in an idol temple. We may devote with equal fervor to the service of the world. There is a practical idolatry all over the world, in nominally Christian lands as well as among the pagan, in families that acknowledge no God but wealth and fashion, in the hearts of multitudes of individuals who would scorn the thought of worshiping at a pagan altar. And it is even to be found in the heart of many a one who professes to be acquainted with the one true God and to be an heir of heaven. God should have the supreme place in our affections. The love of everything else should be held in strict subordination to the love of him. End quote. If God and Christ are not fully loved and highly esteemed over all other things, then it should not be thought that either are really loved at all. There is no middle ground for the Christian to balance love for God and love for the world, to love not what the flesh desires, but that which the Spirit wills. Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
Thus, if men desire to be saved, then love for God and the Son of God must rise above every other carnal and worldly desire in their heart. It is only by doing this that Christ's first commandment is obeyed and any form of idolatry abandoned. Simply because any continuance in sin is a form of unrighteousness, which will prevent entrance into Christ's coming kingdom. And now 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. It is possible for men to be deceived that they can continue in sin, yet still enter Christ's kingdom. This is undoubtedly not true, as the simplicity and clearness of this verse cannot be denied. For this reason, continued care and effort should be taken to remove anything in the heart that rivals God and the new spiritual life gained through belief in God's Son.